0: Hi, everybody. It's Charlie, and this is the podcast To Hell and Back, um, in which every week we go to a different kind of hell, uh, I guess, when I think about it right now. I just haven't thought of the title for a long time. I think I would have changed the title if I thought it wasn't appropriate, but I think it fits most things we do, because the kind of hell we're talking about right now, I don't know if it's really hell is quite the right word. It's the... um, it's being in this era of politics where every day coming from all over the place is all kinds of news, all kinds of information, all kinds of decisions that set off negative feelings in people on both sides of the arguments. Um, and uh, so it's kind of interesting because it just keeps boiling along. and so I don't know if it's quite hell. I think it's very different for different people. For some people it truly is hell and I've known some of them and they just can't stand it and they're ready to leave the country. And for other people it's just nonstop um, preoccupation or just annoyance with what's going on and, and, and big time worries for some people. So anyway, that's what we're talking about. Um, and I want to tell you that uh, for those of you who listen to this and then wonder uh, when will be the next installment of the podcast and the, this topic in particular that the plan for the next podcast is uh, today is the ninth, is the 5th of March six o'clock Massachusetts time and the next one will be three weeks from now the 26th of March six o'clock Massachusetts time uh, It'll be announced on my website and I think it'll be a continuation of what I'm doing today but I want to see what I get to today just had a lot of different thoughts about where I'm headed with this today. Um, So, um, let me start with this. May not sound like it has anything to do with the topic. The other day, Monday, my usual Monday, is that for the first uh, three hours, I do a consultation at the Department of Mental Health Usually with a, about a treatment that's not going very well uh, of a, uh, some patient in the public sector and they come with their team and their sometimes their therapist the psychiatrist and so on and we do a, a whole big deal consultation. I love these I mean starting these starting my week with that every week is uh, one of the joys of my work life it's really like you know a real challenging gripping engaging thing for me and often there's very few suggestions you can make after somebody's been struggling for so long and on monday i saw this uh, 21 year old woman hispanic uh from the big city in our area Um, she was uh had a, a long several years of psychotic disorder She has PTSD from a lot of incidents in the past and a really difficult childhood. She had, um, uh, she's impoverished. She really has very little money. Uh, She has some medical problems. Uh, And she copes uh, financially by being a prostitute, which also brings her uh, into a relationship with a pimp, a man, Uh, whose place she lives in some of the time, otherwise she's homeless. And uh, she, you know, will see several men in a given night uh, to make money for uh, him, and he pays her some money. Uh, He treats her not very well most of the time, and yet he does pay her, so she's very dependent on him. Um, And uh, all of that is her baseline, I mean, that's her life. And then, in addition, uh, she repeatedly tries to kill herself. Uh, And she goes in and out of hospitals. So they were coming. The team came and brought her in order to uh, bring up the question, is there any way to slow to cut down on the cycle of suicidal events and hospitalization? She's been doing it for years. So, it's kind of like a long standing problem, very complex, interwoven with her lifestyle, interwoven with her biology, interwoven with her PTSD, interwoven with her psychosis, and with impoverishment and with things that are cultural factors, social factors of being a Hispanic psychotic person in a large city. Um, and so, what did I do? Because I had a certain amount of time with her. What I did because I gave you a certain amount of general I call that general it's disturbing information general information it's a summary of a lot of events is that I I asked if she and I could pick one event a recent suicide attempt and hospitalization and go over it in great detail in and because and this is both something i've learned in my own work for a long time and also within dbt as a strategy is that if somebody is chronically suicidal or if somebody's chronically self-harming or somebody's chronically has a certain set of problem behaviors that one way to get at it that can illuminate things at more depth and with more uh, specificity is to pick one event and go through it and that one of through that one event as a lens you see the whole picture And you can't see everything, but one event gives a certain kind of illumination that you can't get by talking in general about the problem. Uh, So sometimes it's weird because you feel like, oh my God, this is a huge thing we're dealing with and there's so many problems, but actually I'm zeroing in on one recent event in order to get the details and get what we call a behavioral chain analysis. And then from there, you can start asking questions about what to do about that chain, about the behaviors in that chain. So I wanna I want I, I now relate this to what, what I've been talking about, because I've been talking in general about this big problem of our maintaining our psychological lives, managing our distress these days, in a context where there's a, a political uh, polarized environment, with all kinds of uh, mistrust and hatred and dislike and dread and fear and anger and events day after day after day after day, and uh, and to to where it just seems to go on and on and on, and you open the paper or your phone or the internet on a given day and you see another five things that trigger you, you know, like this morning, I get up and pretty soon after I get up, I'm reading about. Uh, a little bit about the details about an agreement we're making with the Taliban and Afghanistan's government that's going to result in bringing some of our troops home. Um, and that triggered me. And it triggered me more than I knew. It kept coming back to my mind during the day, like, what is going on here? And yet, it doesn't it sound like a pretty good piece of news? I mean, a pretty positive headline compared to some things we see. Um, but it triggered a variety of things about the current political era, and I'm going to come back to it. And and so I think one way to uh, illuminate what's going on uh, in this larger situation is to pick incidents, pick events, pick one time that you go to the news, that you hear something on television, that you read something on the internet or social media, or you read a tweet, or whatever it is, or somebody says something related to the political environment. And it triggers you. Now, it doesn't trigger you to kill yourself, I hope. It doesn't trigger you to do anything terrible in the moment. But there's an accumulation of triggering events and triggering triggered responses, which adds up to a triggered attitude. And you walk around with that, and it's the sum total of, uh, of of the last thousand events. And so that's one way to look at it. It's sort of like looking at sociology compared to psychology. Or you can zero in and say, let's look at one event. So I wanna look at one event. This is on the way to today's podcast about getting more and more practical about things to do to help maintain your sanity, help maintain your balance, help maintain your grounding, uh, help you suffer less, and maybe even be more effective in the current environment, whether you're an activist or whether you're somebody who sits on the sidelines and tries to understand what's going on, or whether you're sort of partially tuned out of things. So so I've written up some stuff. I felt like, you know, listening to this podcast, there's going to be people who know all about behavioral chain analysis, and there's going to be people who know nothing about it, and then everything in between. So I want to walk through what is behavioral chain analysis and then turn it to apply it to what's going on now. So I wrote some stuff up. Let me read it to you, this part. When you're trying to sort out a distressing, confusing, dysregulating experience, set off by some kind of input, some kind of triggering event, in DBT called a prompting event, it can be illuminating to use a behavioral chain. You spell out detail by detail in chronological order the sequence of how you got from point A, where things, where you started, to point Z, where things are bad enough that you might even engage in some regrettable action. Let's say, for instance, that you're someone who works on a podcast for years and you invest in it and you try to make it informative and helpful and you always wonder how it sounds to people who listen to it or who watch it. And let's say you didn't get a good sleep the night before you do the podcast and let's say you're on overload with commitments in your life and obligations and you're worried about the coronavirus and about the lives that your children will be able to have in the current environment extended out long-term, whether it's climate change or other things. You are at, from our point of view, the left end of the chain, the beginning of the chain And it is what we call the vulnerability factors. In this example, from what I've told you so far, you would have what I might call general vulnerability factors. Things like poor sleep, worries about the world, stresses in your life, etc. Things that make you vulnerable to whatever comes your way that day. Now, um, then there are what I might call specific vulnerability factors, the type of factors that render you specifically vulnerable with respect to the particular triggering event or prompting event that comes at you that day that you're trying to analyze, like to care about your podcast renders you vulnerable to your podcast, to care about whether it is effective, to care about whether people like it and learn from it. To have doubts about the choices you make in it that make you specifically vulnerable to any kind of feedback, feedback you get. You're pleased with positive feedback, but let's say for sake of argument that someone informs you that you are boring or tedious or that you talk too much when you interview people even though you thought how can, how can you talk less, but then of course you could let the other person talk more or you should do more editing and production and make it a more polished podcast. Having been vulnerable to this kind of specific vulnerability, this feedback, you are hurt when you hear this kind of thing. Your doubts are magnified. You wonder if you should keep doing it. You feel embarrassed. You wonder if this is the general perception. You could resent the input. You might feel like arguing with that person, and so on. There's a lot of possibilities. In other words, now we have two elements of the chain. And just to preview, we're gonna go through five elements. We have the vulnerability factors, which can be both general ones and ones that are specific to the triggering event. And now there's the triggering event or prompting event, namely the critical feedback you get from a podcast listener. If only you could stop everything right then, right there, and let yourself mindfully consider that feedback, you might be curious about it. You might cultivate the valuable information that's being given to you by critical feedback. But before you get yourself to do any of that, there are already instantaneously the automatic responses, very powerful, the hurt, the resentment, the embarrassment, the doubts, the considerations about what to do about it. Maybe you tell somebody this. Maybe you even talk about it at your next podcast. All of those things, the rapid reflexive responses, emotions, thoughts, considerations, urges, decisions you make, actions you take, happen. They happen every time. There's always this in a sequence like I'm talking about. And we call that whole grouping of things the third element of the chain. And it's called the links in the chain. So it has a rather general term. Again, first element, vulnerability factors. You're vulnerable that day. Second element, the triggering or prompting event that comes by and that sort of triggers you. Third element, the links in the chain that are triggered by the prompting event and by each other in a sequence. Among those links might be the activation of dialectical dilemmas of a kind that I talked about in the last podcast. So in that larger group of links, you might get this sort of get activated into being incredibly emotionally vulnerable or incredibly self-critical, which are two extremes. And you want to, in, in treatment, you're looking for the middle path. Um, one of those dilemmas, yeah, I just mentioned that. So one of those dilemmas might be to overwhelmed emotionally and cognitively by what was said in the criticism. What was said about your podcast? Or if we transfer over to the pol- a political event, uh, what was said about the politics that day? And it might activate the dilemma of feeling overwhelmed and relatively paralyzed by the input on the one hand, or on the other hand, just shutting down the flow of information and emotion in your brain and body. Or the podcast input might set off the dilemma, one extreme of which is to be deeply angry and hurt, or the other extreme, which is to shred yourself with criticism. In other words, these kind of tendencies which were programmed by your earlier experiences, you might say lay in wait in you and in the chain, like landmines that could blow up if you step on them. And then you step on them and they might blow up into more emotions and actions and so on. Now we have a fairly complex idea laid out in a chain. First that you're vulnerable in general and specific ways, Then the trigger event comes by and you're hit by it. Then the triggering event sets off this sequence of thoughts, emotions, actions, urges, and so on. And there are links in the chain and that those links include the activation of the preset dialectical dilemmas. Now comes the fourth element of the chain. Some kind of behavior that serves or is intended to serve as the solution to the problem exists within the chain, the tension in the chain, the dysregulation of emotions in the chain, right? What could that be? Well, in the case example I told you about, obviously um, I went through this incident with her and the fourth element of the chain for her was that she tried to kill herself. And then as a result of that, she was hospitalized, which is sort of after the fourth element of the chain in her case. So the attempt to kill herself was an attempt to find a solution to the fact that she had a very bad day to begin with. She saw six men in a hotel room. Her pimp came along and started yelling at her and then he hit her. And then she slammed the door and shut him out of the room and then she tried to kill herself. So there was a whole sequence of events that helped me understand things in vivid detail and a kind that you can't get generally. Now, what would it be in the person who has this tension or conflict or discomfort or dysregulation about the feedback about they got the, about their podcast? Because you don't just have to apply this to things when you do something like try to kill yourself or commit a violent act or anything else that's dramatic. It could just be what you do that is your solution to the tension in the chain. Maybe you decide to stop doing podcasts. Maybe you decide to change how you do them. Maybe you just stop thinking about it or mentioning it. You just suppress the whole thing. You don't think about it again. Or maybe you talk about it in a future podcast. Or maybe you contact the person who wrote the critical email and you defend yourself and you argue or you thank them for the input and you consider whether you should change things and a thousand other options, right? In DBT, this moment in the chain, this solution, so to speak, is called typically the problem behavior because it is a problem behavior that prompts us to even look at the chain in the first place. However, in a broader sense, it would not have to be a problem behavior, in fact, in preparation for this podcast, I thought maybe we should be calling it a solution behavior. The behavior that helps to resolve the tension in the chain, improve the dysregulation or whatever. And finally, after the solution behavior, the fourth element of the chain, we come to the final element of the chain, which is the consequences of the problem behavior or solution behavior. Some of those consequences might reinforce doing the same problem or solution behavior again in the future because you reinforced for it, Um, or the consequences might punish the way you solved it or the way the problem behavior was and you might not do it again. So that's the way we think of and use a behavioral chain in DBT to illuminate a sequence of pretty automatic responses and it can lead to greater clarity and understanding. It's a way of spelling out a story you know, I'm sort of a storyteller, if you've listened to many podcasts, and, and one, one thing I love about behavioral chains is it's just a structured way to tell a story. And it opens the door to recognizing, if you want, where you might do things differently in the future, in the similar chains in the future. Doing the chain is a way of being mindful of your own process and of finding ways to change your own process, okay? So, what does this have to do with the distress during the era of Trump? Let's say you're a supporter of Donald Trump and you're following the news about the management of the coronavirus in the United States. And you read something within the past few days in the newspaper or on social media or on TV in which Trump is criticized by those on the left for not really understanding the virus, not really understanding the science, of the virus, even though he's sitting in the same room with people who are scientists, not really caring about the virus, not really believing that it actually is gonna hurt anybody, but seeming to care more about the effect on the stock market, which is in turn the effect on his future election prospects. He's accused by those on the left who get all over the internet and television uh, that he's deliberately using denial Uh, that he doesn't understand science, and that he just keeps painting a rosy prognosis over everything, Um, and let's say this is your triggering event, all right? In other words, you are a Trump supporter, and let's say you see all of this, including the criticism from the left. Let's say it's your triggering event. This piece of news falling into your brain is the triggering event. What kinds of vulnerability factors are there already in your Trump supportive brain. Maybe you're among the Trump supporters who really like his personal style, the way he thumbs his nose at usual politics, the way he's willing to disrupt things, the way he holds exciting rallies and uses colorful language, even the way he defies efforts to confine confine him to speaking the truth. Or maybe you're among the Trump supporters who dislike his personal characteristics and his failings, but you're aligned with his pol- the policies he's pushed forward the restriction of immigration lowering taxes for the wealthy getting conservative judges appointed and pulling out of international agreements whichever stripe you are in in support of trump you are sick and tired that those on the left have been attacking him for 4 years calling him out on something every single day never giving the guy a break trying to bring down his presidency, being determined to destroy him. And as a Trump supporter, you are sick of having to defend yourself and to explain the latest thing that Trump has done. You're burned out regarding the left in particular. Okay. So given all of that, every additional, in other words, so you're a Trump supporter and those are your specific vulnerability factors when it comes to him being criticized by the left. So every criticism that comes from the left just is another aggravation at least and maybe an inflammation at most. You're burned out regarding the left. Okay, so given all of that, every additional attack on his, attack on his personal qualities or his policies is another triggering event for you. You hear a statement about him not understanding coronavirus and that statement lands in a sore spot in you, and you're triggered automatically into resentment and anger, defensiveness and some well-established convictions articulated daily on Fox News and other conservative outlets. That those on the left hate him because he doesn't act intellectual, doesn't play the game, doesn't give in to them, etc. So you're triggered, okay? Now you're at the third element in the chain. You've been vulnerable based on the history of all this and the burnout. Then you have a triggering event given the criticism that comes from the left. And then you uh, are triggered into these various thoughts and emotions and urges. You have, and, and, you, and maybe some preset dialectical dilemmas are, are activated. Maybe you travel in one direction to shutting down, to being silent and privately pissed off. Or maybe you move in the other direction to launch an angry verbal attack on whoever represents, from your point of view, the enemy. Maybe you try to get it off your chest. Maybe you find yourself a little bit more gravitated to watching Fox News or listening to Rush Limbaugh or other people that support him because you're huddling with your tribe and you feel more comfortable uh, even while people on the left are huddling with MSNBC, NBC, Rachel Maddow, and others. Right? I could walk us through a similar sequence, a similar behavioral chain by considering the sequence of responses of an anti-Trumper. That person hears the same report indicating that Trump doesn't have a scientific understanding of the virus, that he says it'll go away soon and so on, and that person will have a predictable emotional response. Their vulnerabilities related to this will be triggered. They'll be exasperated by Trump's ignorance, his denial, his rosy outlook, as they'll put it. You might have thoughts and assumptions centered around the idea that he doesn't care about people, only himself, only his election, and he's willing to cripple the scientifically based public health approach by his denial, if only it will prop up the stock market and win him the election. And if this is you on the left, the triggering event falls into a brain that is specifically vulnerable because you find his behaviors offensive and self-centered and dangerous for a long time. So you're naturally frightened by the same thing that makes the Trumpers protective of him. You are sick of him, burned out by him. You recoil at seeing his face on TV or hearing his voice. It doesn't take much, and you're sick of those who are sick of you. And you were having a decent day until the triggering event, and it hijacks your thoughts and feelings. It takes it down predictable paths, and then you're just praying that he'll be defeated in November. And if you're the Trumper or the anti-Trumper, as a result of this new triggering event and this new sequence that travels through you, your tolerance for the next triggering event has gone down. Your cloud of vulnerability has grown bigger. And with every event, it's just assimilated on to uh, this again and again and again until after years, and if, and if there isn't much reflection about it, and reflection isn't easy about these things. Um, then you just are—you're like, you know—it's you're like an automatic, uh, automatic reflexive reaction pattern in response to a huge array of Trump-related events. So we're part of a polarized environment, with the poles far apart, and with each event setting us off into our own predictable pool of reactions. In fact about 10 minutes before the podcast, I just thought for fun, (laughs) fun, if this is fun, um, I would just look at uh, the latest news on the internet and just see if there's anything that triggered me. And of course there is. Once you start looking for it, you realize, yeah, you're very sensitized. I don't know if you are. I'm sensitized to all kinds of things. So I see this announcement that says that Trump is saying, that these huge rallies that he holds and that are central to his identity as a politician and his success as a, as a politician probably, that he says, you know, the fact that the coronavirus exists and that other meetings are being canceled where hundreds or thousands of people get together, that it doesn't need, these don't need to be canceled. These are not a problem. And I, I just saw that and I didn't even read the article. And I just saw that and I thought, oh shit. And it, tr- it fell into my vulnerable place. It was a triggering event just to see that. It set off thoughts about his uh, ignorance of science, about his attempts to uh, overlook and deny the obvious to other people, and, uh, and to aim for his election no matter what, and to assume that he knows better than everybody else, and as a result, that he may be putting people in harm's way um, at his rallies, for instance, and in general, as a model of this, he's just a terrible model, and he's going to put people in harm's way. So I just—I was already down that road in about one minute, and then I thought, how how do you fix? How do you make it so that you're not suffering so constantly with these things, and yet you still maintain your balance and your thinking, and in fact, get sharper? And I went through what, I've been, what I want to talk about more in this podcast. I just kind of went through the, tra- the chain again. And I looked at the, uh, I became sort of aware of, okay, I'm vulnerable to this. Let's just admit this. Let's acknowledge this. I have my own built-in biases by this point in time, for sure. And, uh, and I do get triggered by things. And I often think I'm right about these things. But, you know, I'm just one of many people on many sides of an argument. From another perspective. And so, yeah, then this tr- triggering event comes along. And the triggering event is just Trump says his rallies should be okay and people will be okay at his rallies. And then I just stopped and spent time on just that with my hands open facing the sky to convey a willing attitude, an accepting attitude. Let me look at this, not to agree with it, not to approve of it. Not to forget my criticism of it, but just to make my mind a little more nuanced, a little more sophisticated, mulling over this thing a little bit more. And then I thought, you know, how different is this than what other politicians do? Um, And isn't it true that we're still in an era of the evolution of this coronavirus that we actually, the certainty with which we can ascertain levels of risk in these situations is actually very low in fact earlier today after two days of talking about it with my wife we're trying to decide whether to cancel a trip that she was going to take with my oldest son to puerto rico uh, for his spring break um in week after next and um and we've already like made the plans and paid for the plans and the flight and everything then we're thinking you know but you know my wife and i are we are you know, I'm 70 and she's just getting there and, uh, and she's got, you know, some underlying health conditions sometimes. So what if she ends up with coronavirus to which there's no vaccine yet, so there's no immunity and it does kill more people percentage-wise than the flu did? Maybe this is not a good idea, even though we don't even know if there'll be a coronavirus on the plane. And then I realize in talking to other people, other people are just going about their business. They're going until things are more obvious. So then I thought, you know, it isn't like we know what this is going to be like. I mean, I think I know because I have this idea of how viruses spread, but you know what? We really don't know. Viruses spread like one, one person to two or three at a time. Maybe it'll be at one of his rallies. Maybe it won't. Maybe if it is, it actually, people won't get sick. In other words, There's so much uncertainty that it isn't like so obviously terrible and he's doing what politicians do and this is his brand and he's doing, you know, and it doesn't mean, even though I assume this, I'm making a lot of assumptions. It doesn't mean that he's not thinking about this. I mean, he could be saying this in a very blustery way because he has a very blustery style and he could turn around tomorrow and say, you know, I've been thinking about this, and actually I don't think we should have these rallies like this anymore, because I don't want any of you to get hurt. I mean, that's a possibility, so I don't know. So I just noticed that the triggering event moved me so quickly to my assumptions, so quickly to my ideas, my thoughts, my judgments, and then my emotions, both my negative emotions about that kind of statement, but that statement in light of a thousand previous statements. So then I realized, okay, let me stop and think about this chain. And my first point to you all tonight uh, about this is that, and it's a big one, is that if you're willing, I think there's a lot of advantages to be had. Once you look zero in on one event, one incident, one chain of events through which you think like this to sort of, take it a step at a time, dismantle the chain a little bit, mull about the different elements in the chain and, and think about them and, th- and think more broadly about them, put them in a larger context where you actually employ your intellect, your nuances, your objectivity and look at it and, and realize that you can do that without taking yourself out of your usual lane or your usual activism, it might even make you smarter and stronger because if you can understand the causes and conditions of certain behaviors, you might get better at being able to try to fix them. And I mean behaviors outside yourself, like political behaviors or or things that you do yourself. So I just wanted to go over that little thought experiment I did just before this started. So in this environment, as event after triggering event happens, what can we do to keep ourselves sane, balanced, grounded, present, so, we don't get derailed into reactions that make us more and more miserable and lead us to make some regrettable uh, judgments sometime. That's what I'm getting towards. But before I get there, I realized before I started writing down all the practical solutions, I need to share quickly uh, eight assumptions, each more briefly than it deserves. Assumption number one those who are for Trump and those who are against Trump, just to do one lineup share far more as people than the ways in which they differ. Not that you would know it, uh, but they both are concerned about their futures, their safety, their children, their careers, their communities, the people around them, their human decency. They like to hike. They like to garden or fish or hunt or go to the theater or go to sporting events. They like stories. They like music. They love it when someone makes a personal sacrifice for a friend or a family member. The DNA on both sides is that of a human being in family and community. We look across at the other, capital O-T-H-E-R, and we can't imagine how they take the positions they do, which only inflames us further, which increases the polarization which leads us to have a more um, objectified and uh, dehumanizing point of view about who they are. And it breaks down any real hope of dialogue and any real hope of solution other than some thing to do in this moment. Number two, those who support Trump are not homogeneous in how they regard him, in why they support him. They are a diverse and complex group. He is a champion of their causes or They love that he's like a real life Archie Bunker or Homer Simpson. Or, and similarly, those who are against Trump are not homogeneous in why and how they are against him. They're a diverse, complex group. They range from people who just don't like his personal qualities to thinking he's destroying the planet and he's trampling on the Constitution. And then there's people really frightened about him thinking he's sort of Hitler-esque. Number three. While Trump has put his personal stamp on the political environment, for better or worse, depending who you are, the larger problem is the divisiveness, and I talked about this a lot last time, uh, and the degree of polarization in our country, and the fact that a huge part of the electorate has been left behind in the past 30 to 40 years. And these two huge problems loom more enduringly than Trump. Four, we're locked into this death grip between two opposing vitriolic poles, and we're reinforced over and over again by those on our side, those in our tribe. The reinforcement comes in the form of sound bites, social media, a prepackaged, oversimplified arguments, almost like talking points with emotions, that we can remember and articulate when the time comes. We don't have to think very much. In fact, I think this is what keeps perpetuating the polarization as much as anything else. It's the, the lack of thought, the lack of mindfulness, and the dehumanization of the other side attributing to them that they don't think and that they aren't mindful of what's going on. The prepackaged, oversimplified arguments are sort of the equivalent of fast foods. They're easy to buy, easy to eat. They have a lot of calories in them. They may have little substance in them. They're comforting and they help us join with others. Number five is a short one. We believe in our own thoughts. We believe in our own judgments. And that is a huge impediment to solving some of these things. Number six, information flows into our brains way too fast during this era to the point that it is overwhelming continuous, and it interrupts our ability to digest and mull and just be able to think through our thoughts about what's going on. Uh, I'm not sure that human beings uh, were equipped to be at this point, and maybe we're evolving, but uh, there's just too much input 24 hours a day. Number seven, complex, nuanced, sophisticated, and objective thinking processes are in many cases invalidated in this environment. It, it gets modeled on television, it gets modeled in the debates, it gets modeled in interviews, it gets modeled in tweets, that if you aren't done explaining yourself after 256 characters or 90 seconds, uh, you've gone too long. And uh, people's capacity to sit there and listen to something um, that's complicated and looks at things from more than one side, I think is kind of low and it makes you feel, I think if you actually are sophisticated about these things and nuance and looking for an objective point of view, you can start to feel like, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a minority of one in, in the environment. And number eight, last one, <clears throat> a little complicated, this one. I tried to get at it last week. We can do two things at once, even though it's not easy. What do I mean? On one hand, we can strive to be objective, nuanced, to validate aspects on both sides of an argument, to work toward balance and dialogue, and recognition that actually, in many ways, we're all in it together. This, especially for most of us, requires seeing the wisdom of the other side because we already see our own wisdom to have the patience to actually think through an issue. And on the other hand, on the other hand, the other thing we can do at the same time is that we can, uh, even though we're trying to preserve our point of view with ob- objectivity and balance, we can also ardently take our own position. We, our likes, our dislikes, <laughs> our worries and our hopes, and our own assessment of the likely consequences of various choices and we can work like hell to achieve our own vision so don't think that just because you're doing number 1 which is to be balanced and to try to see both sides of the argument or 14 sides of the argument for all of, that you're not going to on the other hand take your own position that's aligned with your own values and your own goals and your own fears and you're going to fight like hell to see it through both of these are possible and somehow I think in this era, it's hard to take two sides at once. So what can we do to take care of ourselves, to expand our awareness and increase our effectiveness and our compassion and reduce our suffering and maybe that of those around us? I'm gonna to turn to the principles of DBT and to the skills of DBT for, the, for some answers to this. Um, there are three, just brief overview. There are three sets of principles in DBT, at least according to me, I wrote a book called DBT principles in action. And I really went through all of DBT a lot and, uh, tried to extract the principles. And I thought I came out with five principles of the paradigm of being absolutely accepting and mindfully aware. Five principles that are aligned with the paradigm of cognitive behavioral therapy and changing behavior and five principles that are aligned with the paradigm of dialectical philosophy or dialectics in DBT. So there's really 15 principles and I'm not going to go through all principles. Uh, It would take me another uh, several podcasts. Um, So, I'm going to, and, and then there are four sets of skills. So really, I'm just gonna be turning now to the principles and the skills, and I'm gonna start with uh, the set of acceptance-based principles and things that they can help you with in this situation. Okay. Okay, so the first principle, each of these to me is huge, and they're very, um, by now, for me, I don't know if they'll sound practical to you, but they're very practical to me. I use them over and over again every day, many of these. So the first one is just to be anchoring your attention and your focus in the present moment the here and the now, the only real true moment that exists. The political environment pulls our attention into the past, things that have happened, mistakes that have been made, regrettable incidents, how you ran a campaign, how you lost an argument, how something happened in the Senate uh, or victories, all of which is history now and all of which just drags us back into the past. So you wanna know those things, you wanna go over those things, you wanna learn from those things. Also, political the political environment pulls our attention into the future. Things that we are hoping for, we're fighting for, things that we're afraid of, things that we're dreading happening. Losing our democracy, the shredding of our constitution, the ruining of our climate, the precipitation of nuclear war. Um, And so, uh, or on the other hand, if you were on more the Trump side of the argument, you get dragged into the future worried about losing individual liberties, if the Democrats are allowed to pursue their agenda, Um, living under socialism, as they say, uh, losing your right to bear arms, uh, having uh, not enough barriers Uh, around the country to keep immigrants from just pouring in and doing whatever they want and all these things you're afraid of. So all of these things on the right and on the left, once you're in a hyper-polarized environment with lots of fears and lots of arguments, then you get pulled out of this precise moment, out of this actually moment, this moment and what is true in fact in this moment. To adhere to this principle for me means to try to let go at least for the time being, when I see myself getting caught in it, of the recriminations and regrets about the past or the dreads and the dreams about the future. To try to free up my mind to inhabit this moment, uh, which sometimes means this moment outside the political debate as a way to nourish myself by having my mind go to the experience of trees and, and grass, of of maple syrup being boiled outside, which my one of my sons is doing with a couple of friends right now, um, having tapped some maple trees in our yard uh, yesterday and today. Uh, focused on music and art, or just being with a friend, and really just being able to be in the moment, uninterrupted by the political environment. Looking at the awesome sunset, or just uh, or just even quietly thoughtfully reading something about the political environment and allowing yourself to actually just focus on that in this moment. You can bring the past into your mind while you're in the moment. You can bring the future into your mind when you're in this moment, but you're less likely to get hijacked by the past or the future and the emotions associated with the dreams and the hopes and the uh, losses and the fears you're less likely to get caught in them as profoundly and be, and therefore stay more balanced, balancing your rational mind with your emotional mind. So no one can be in this moment, this present moment all the time. No no one even comes close in our society. I mean, that's what people who meditate work on all the time and even they can't do it. It's a, It's more a matter of degree and frequency, returning again and again and again to the nourishing uh, way of being when your attention is grounded in the present moment. Second principle non attachment. Some of our suffering is probably inevitable, uh, is unavoidable, is understandable. But some of our suffering comes to the way we get attached to an idea that has to be realized, a political position that has to prevail, a fear as, and, and as as fear, a fear that's based on our prediction of what will happen, and we get convinced that we're right about that, something we're attached to. We suffer when we think we know, we think we are convinced what should happen, when we totally believe in our thought and our judgment, what has to take place. Trump has to lose. Trump has to win. Sanders or Biden has to win. Take your pick. If we build a wall between us and Mexico, it will destroy the very fabric of our country where we need fewer walls and more bridges. If we build a wall between us and Mexico, which we absolutely have to do, not only will we come through for Donald Trump who needs us, our champion, but also we will serve notice to immigrants that they cannot just pour across the border at will, destroying what we have built in this country. These are passionate attachments to ideas, to convictions, and not that I don't believe in passionate attachment to ideas and convictions, but they also cause suffering if we can't let go of them and examine them. Getting attached to ideas and feelings, getting attached to what should be in the moment, what should be in the future, what has to be. Uh, can really generate immense suffering without adding to our effectiveness. So I recommend letting go of the attachments when we can be aware of them, can think of them, re-examine them in a larger context, get perspective on them, see that some of the things we're suffering from, not all, are attachments to ideas and shoulds and expectations uh, that have to be and that Some of them are not so make or break, or black or white. Principle number three, impermanence. This moment, this very moment, when we have just won or lost an election, just won or lost an argument, just when we've heard the dumbest thing we think we've ever heard from the other side, this very moment when the Congress has made a decision, that I think will ruin us. This very moment is fleeting. It is unique. It is gone before we can even think about it. Things, everything, everywhere, at every level is changing every moment. Nothing stays the same. This terrible moment will surely pass. This amazing, wonderful moment will surely pass. So the thought here is to lean into this moment and grab onto it, seize the day, as they say, smell the flowers, as they say, and notice if your suffering is worsened by thinking that things are permanent, that things are here to stay, that regrettable decisions can never be reversed, undone, or compensated for. We don't have any idea what would happen if a wall was built, what would happen next? We just don't know. We're attached to the idea and we have a a scenario in our mind. Things are more fluid and more liquid than they seem in the despair of the moment. They seem solid, they seem permanent, and that makes things uh, more disturbing if we don't like how they are. But if you can realize that things move and remind yourself that things change, then you can relax a little bit and work to influence the next moment in in your chosen direction. But don't be so attached that it has to go a certain way or that it's gonna be this way forever or that your uh, efforts are not gonna get repaid one way or another by the reaction to them, even if it isn't obvious they succeed in the moment. Fourth principle, interbeing. This is a deep one and not as easy to explain. Not that the others were easy, but this is really harder. But when you take it in and get on board with the perspective in the idea of interbeing, everything looks different. Let me use Thich Nhat Hanh's metaphor about waves and water. Probably some of you know this. Historically, we can think of ourselves as waves coming in toward the shore. We can think of a political party as a wave coming toward the shore, a political movement as a wave. All the waves are coming in toward shore, alongside each other. Each wave has a certain size, a certain shape, a speed, a level of force in it, and a given wave if it had the capacity to look, it may look at itself and look at the other waves coming in nearby and come to certain conclusions, such as, I am a bigger wave than that one. I am a smaller wave. I am a faster wave. I am a slower wave. I am a more beautiful or ugly wave. I am a brilliant wave or a dumb wave and waves develop attitudes, maybe a superior attitude or an inferior attitude. As long as we align our identity with that wave, that's the way of looking at yourself or your political party or your movement or your friends. I am part of the Trump wave, you might think. We are bigger, stronger, more powerful, more intelligent, we're more down to earth than the anti-Trump wave that is intellectual but not grounded, that is more elitist, that is less substantial, that looks nice but actually through its decisions are destroying the other waves. And when we are thinking this way and thinking in the way that Thich Nhat Hanh called historical reality, we create emotions about bigger and smaller better and worse, superior and inferior, helpful versus dangerous. And we are always comparing wave to wave, fearing that our wave will be dissolved or overtaken by another wave, since our very existence is aligned with our wave, which has its own brand. And as a result of thinking that way, we suffer. We fight for our wave, and we suffer unnecessarily because it's a way of thinking, and then we realize that this way of seeing ourselves uh, uh, having a wave identity, unique from others, boundaries between our wave and other waves, boundaries that are solid and distinct. We have fears of being eclipsed by other waves, destroyed by other waves or we're excited about overtaking other waves. This is all just one perspective. It's a meaningful perspective, this historical perspective, and we all have it, but there's another one on the same situation. We are all water. Yes, regardless of the characteristics of each wave, all waves are made up of water, the same exact ingredients, H2O. We are all so alike if we look past The shape and form of the wave of the moment. All waves crash and dissolve back into water. Actually, a wave is not a thing moving through the ocean, if you think about it. It is a shape, a shape made up of water, and the water actually isn't moving towards shore all the time as much as the wave is. The water is assuming the form of a a wave, and then that form moves along to the next water and the next water. Uh, And then water, each water in a a minute is gonna be occupied by another wave that's coming from further out. This perspective is that we're all the more more same than different. We're all intimately related to each other and we're all interdependent on each other for the shapes of our waves, our lives, our political parties. Republicans, among other things, are non-Democrats. Democrats, Democrats, among other things, are non-Republicans. The water perspective helps us to retain our awareness of common humanity across different waves. When we are caught up in our own simplistic, prepackaged arguments, our tweets, our Facebook posts, our attacks on each other, our assumptions about the other, we suffer, and the otherness between us looms so much larger than our waterness our commonality. So to now and then return to the perspective of we are all water made up of the same hopes and dreams and fears and sorrows, it can help to temper the simplistic polarizations that cause us so much pain and that lead to such lasting judgments. I can see based on time, as is often the case, I didn't get as far as I thought I would this time, so I'll be picking up next time. But I got through four principles out of five, and then I'm going to start on on a bunch of skills, and then I'll continue. So that, that'll be the content of the fourth podcast in this series. But to remind you, it won't be here until March 26th. So have a good three weeks. I hope you enjoy listening to this, and uh, I hope that it begins to help with some perspectives and and maybe principles by now and in the future, some skills I'll get to. Thanks very much. Take good care. Bye.